Hello, and welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a lot of eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am, as always, one of your hosts. My name is John Steinberg, and I am joined by my extraordinarily talented co-host who goes by the name of Santino Mayoni back again for another great episode of Visionaries. John, this week, I know you got to select a quote for words to live by. So tell our wonderful audience what quote we're going to be looking at for our first segment. We're going to be looking at, well, it's a quote that has kind of taken on a life of its own. Here's the quote, and then we'll delve into uh, what I'm talking about a bit. And the quote comes to us by way of dearly departed NBA great Kobe Bryant. Pretty simple. It's only three words. Trust the process. Now, if you're familiar with the soundbite, you might attribute it to Sam Hinkie with the Philadelphia 76ers, or you might probably reasonably assume that it would have come to Kobe by way of Zen master Phil Jackson. But in any case, kind of goes down in the historical record as coming from the Black Mamba himself. So when I hear this quote, part of the reason why it has resonated in such a meaningful way within my solar plexus is because it's exactly the type of thing, mantra, that really inspires people to get the most out of their experience as a human being. When we trust the process, we're really trusting ourselves. We are trusting the legwork. We're trusting all of the preparation that has gone into a decision. So for example, if we're talking about making a Denver omelet in the kitchen, and we've done it before, well, we should be able to theoretically trust that process. Developing a system, something that works with repeatable steps and procedures that are really easy to adopt and maintain so that when it actually comes time to making any given decision, it becomes instinctual and we're able to trust the process. And for the disabled community, this holds true particularly. Again, I'll go back to that example. We're making that Denver omelet. We've had a lesson on it. We know the ingredients that are meant to be there. We know the steps. So naturally, by the second time that we make that Denver omelet, we can go ahead and trust the process. Santino, when you saw that I had selected this quote for today, your thoughts and uh, the quote, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I was actually one of the people that knew that, that, that this quote came from Kobe Bryant before because, you know, as you alluded to, Sam Hinkie, he had used this quote when talking about the Philadelphia 76ers in reference to the fact that they were kind of tanking every year, which if you're not familiar with what tanking is, it basically means where a uh, sports team will kind of purposefully lose or purposefully be bad in order to get like good draft picks and be able to get some of the best players coming into next season. So a lot of people attribute that quote trust the process to the Philadelphia 76ers and, you know, their former general manager, Sam Hinkie. 
But yes, I do remember the quote. I actually knew that it came from Kobe Bryant originally. So overall, when I heard the quote, I think just the quote itself, trust the process. It just means that you just got to stick with, you just got to stick with what's whatever you're doing and just know and trust and understand that whatever is meant to happen is going to happen. That whatever is meant to happen is the process. Whatever is happening and whatever you're going through, it's the process that you're supposed to go through, if that makes sense. So it's just about being true within yourself and knowing that you almost it, like it, it, it brings me back to control also, because I know we've talked about control in other episodes before bringing me back to knowing that even if you don't have control over something, you have to trust the process and trust that it's going to work out for the better, no matter what you're going through or what's going on. I think that Kobe Bryant had some of those experiences and trusting the process is exactly what Kobe Bryant did. And look at where it got him five-time NBA champion and what he accomplished in his career. So if we apply that to our lives, there's no way that we won't be either whatever it is successful, happy, whatever it may be. Trusting the process is what you need to do because it's the best, it's, it's the best way for you to be able to not just achieve what you want to achieve, but it's the best way to just go through life, just trusting that things are going to work out, trusting the process. And it also eradicates notions of trepidation and fear. And if you are a longtime Visionaries listener, you will undoubtedly be familiar with that consistent refrain. Get away from fear, develop a system, and then going forward, trust that process. Yeah, most definitely. Before we move on to the next segment, We've talked about fear constantly, you know, whether it's been like, you know, from you telling stories and and giving us little anecdotes and our listeners being able to understand that, you know, you didn't let fear get in the way. So why should anybody else or not even just fear, but like doubt and questioning and worry. It's like, oh, what if this doesn't work out? What if that doesn't work out? This quote right here, just trust in the process. Like you said, it, it completely nullifies that it gets rid of it entirely that there's no need to fear or have fear or to worry about, oh, well, how things are going to work out. Because if you trust the process, it's going to be, it, it, the chips will fall where they may and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. That's the whole idea of trusting the process. But we'll move on from this segment. That is our words to live by for this week. Moving on to Hampers Hall of Fame. I got to select our latest inductee and I went with, I think, a very, very, very deserving candidate in Christopher Reeve. So, John, I want to get your just initial reactions. Like before, you know, we, we delve into kind of why I inducted him, why he's a good candidate for this week's Hamperance Hall of Fame. Had you heard of Christopher Reeve before I brought him up uh, for the latest inductee for this uh, episode of Visionaries? Absolutely. And I was sort of surprised that he's not someone who was on our radar before. Uh, Christopher Reeve, most folks out there might remember as the original well, original in the cinematic sense, Superman. He portrayed Clark Kent in the 1970s Superman films, the ones that were directed by Richard Donner. He also appeared in movies like Village of the Damned, uh, the John Carpenter remake that came out in the early 90s. And he had a number of other notable appearances on both the big and small screens. 
And well, Santino, this is your selection. So uh, yeah, continue kind of telling us about uh, Mr. Reeve. Christopher Reeve, again, he had been in many, many different movies. I knew him from his performances in Superman and Superman 2. Um, and then the big thing I want to get to, obviously, in 1995, on May 27th, he ended up breaking his neck. He was thrown from a horse during an equestrian competition in Virginia, and the injury paralyzed him from the shoulders down, and he had to then use a wheelchair and a ventilator for the rest of his life. So you would think that you know that would prevent him from being able to continue to act, continue to pursue his passion, like working creatively. That didn't, it did not do that at all. He returned to creative work just two years later, directing in the in directing a movie in the gloaming in 1997, and he acted in the television remake of Rear Window just three years later in 1998. He also made several appearances in the Superman-themed television series Smallville, and he wrote two autobiograph autobiographical books. So despite what happened to him again, being almost completely pretty, pretty much completely paralyzed after his accident in 1995, just two and three years later, he managed to continue to pursue his passion. He didn't let it deter him. And this is exactly what we look for in, or at least what I look for when I'm looking for candidates to induct into our Hamperance hall of fame. It's somebody who continues to persevere and doesn't let unforeseen circumstances and not ideal circumstances get in the way of pursuing what they love to do. Not only did he not only did he go back and direct the movie, he continued to act while being in a wheelchair and a ventilator for the rest of his life. That is the epitome of what we look for in Hamprint's Hall of Fame inductees. Yeah, and with Christopher Reeve, you touched upon the rear window remake of, of course, the classic Hitchcock film that originally starred Jimmy Stewart. And I remember seeing that. That was a made-for-TV movie that was on a major network. And I recall, even as a kid, seeing that and remarking, wow, I cannot believe that gentleman is still making a go of it in terms of being an actor. Now, Reeve, unfortunately, did succumb to some other health-related issues. Uh, he died before his time, but this consistent mantra that we like to espouse here of perseverance, today we talked about trust the process, continue on in spite of those challenges and obstacles that many others would see as completely taking topics off of the table. Reeve is the quintessential warrior who managed to continue on with his work as a performer in spite of really being in an objectively tragic accident. Perseverance, you want to call it stick-to-itiveness, whatever word you would like to ascribe to the type of person who continues battling in spite of permanent paralysis, that is the type of person that we love highlighting on this podcast. And therefore, Christopher Reeve, congratulations. You are the latest inductee into our illustrious Handprints Hall of Fame.
Yeah, and like you said, somebody who I was kind of surprised we hadn't looked at him sooner as someone to induct. I'm glad that I ended up finding him and chose to chose to induct him into this week because I feel like he was a very, very deserving candidate. And once again, welcome to our Hamperts Hall of Fame, Christopher Reeve. We'll move on to our next segment, though, John. I know you have a discussion that you want to engage in for Profiles and Courage for our audience to kind of get a better understanding of the way that uh, society and even you and I have worked with the disabled community. Absolutely. So you may have noticed, dear listeners, that uh, we haven't been able to post an episode in the last couple of weeks. And the chief reason for that is I started a more formal role within the visually impaired community, helping students, helping young people, helping people of all kinds as they attempt to seize control of their destiny and have the type of lives that they've always wanted to have. So with that, I couldn't help but think of my own experiences in this field, but also your experiences working with Ability Media. And it got me to a fundamental question. It might seem elementary, basic, on the surface, but I think if we peel back a layer, we'll really get to some meaningful truths and commentary on the topic. But here's the question, the essential question. How can we help? This is a world where finally, it seems like the tide is turning and those in the disabled community are well, finally being seen, we have all forms of pop culture. In prior episodes, we've discussed the Oscar-winning film Coda. And it's within the last decade that members of the disabled community, their voices really have been increased in volume. But I still think we ultimately arrive at the fundamental question of what's the best way that we can help. And for me, it first starts with what I just mentioned. We need to continue providing marginalized communities, folks within the disabled community, people that haven't historically been heard from a great deal. We need to continue providing those human beings with voices, their stories, their plight, their experiences, it can all serve the world community as a whole extremely well in that people need to hear from these individuals. They have been historically marginalized and we could speculate as to why that's happened or perhaps prejudicial attitudes that have curried favor within the 220 plus years of American history, but it does seem like the tide is beginning to change. So the first thing that we need to do is continue empowering members of these vital communities with platforms to be able to speak upon their experiences. Secondarily, I think we need to hear from this community with respect to what they need. So something that happens on a near daily basis that I've described 
is someone with a big heart who cares a great deal, I'm sure, and whose motives are clearly coming from a great place, they will, well, in practice, let's say I'm coming off of a bus or the train. It's almost on a daily basis where someone will try to kind of grab me. They'll see my cane. They'll see me walking and assume the best thing that we can do right now for this person is go over, grab them by the arm, and get them on the walking path. That's not always the case. That can be sometimes terrifying, to be honest, when a complete stranger comes up to you and without saying anything, grabs you by the arm and yanks you over toward a sidewalk. But it's important to remember that their hearts are in the right place. However, that is not always what the community needs. So we need to continue hearing from them directly talking about what they need from everyone else. Santino, what are some of your initial thoughts on this topic of how can we help? I agree with everything you were saying. Um, I mean, I'll give some of my personal experiences and I'll, I'll speak honestly to work to like when I started working with you when I was in Los Angeles and we started, we initially started this podcast. I was, and I'll be honest, I was kind of, nervous a little bit and also just like curious as to how it would how it would go because i had never worked with anybody who was blind never worked with anybody who was a member of the, of the disabled community so i wasn't exactly sure how it was going to go and i mean it obviously went really well and continues to go really well but my eyes got opened to you know how you just talked about sometimes the best thing to do because i was one of those people that would that would see you know, somebody, if I would see somebody walking with a cane, if I was out in like New York city or something, and I would see somebody walking with a cane, I would be somebody who would, you know, if, if I saw them kind of like about to walk into something, I would go, like, I, I would feel the urge and the, the need to go and not push them, but kind of like nudge them out of the way. If, if there was like a pole or whatever it may, a, a fire hydrant, whatever it may have been, if something was in their way. And working with you and seeing, you know, you walk in LA and just kind of like how you operate on a daily basis that allowed me to, like, and you just talking about it now, it allowed me to understand, okay, that's not always what they need in that moment. So I think my big, my, my biggest takeaway is that we need to, as a society, just people in general, not be so quick to assume what, somebody of the disabled community may need like not like oh we like we think they know what they need no we need to ask them and kind of wait for them to ask for help kind of thing and you've talked about that to a, to a great extent over the life cycle of the show it's that let me be the one to you know grab onto your arm if i need let me be the one to ask if i need help because i will but if I don't act, like just like any other person, if I don't ask, if I don't like, you know, grab on, if I don't say that I need help, then like I could do it myself. That's the whole idea. So I think that's very important is not to just assume that, oh, okay, we should go help. While there are good intentions, like you said, yes, don't just automatically assume. And, you know, in my case, I'll say, just learn as much as we can expose yourself as much as you can. I know it, it probably might, might be difficult for some people, but expose yourself as much as possible because I've gotten the exposure through, through ability media that I never would have gotten in any, in, in any other kind of circumstance 
and it's been extremely beneficial for me. So I think those would be the two things that I would uh, highlight and pinpoint in this discussion. Definitely. And I would double down on education. You mentioned this notion of learning that people merely need to be educated. I think I remember taking we had a class when I was in high school called health and under that subheading of, okay, this is a class and this is a class in health. We talked about human sexuality, nutrition, and a lot of those basic human qualities that everyone essentially needs to understand in order to lead effective lives. I'd like to see small academic units devoted to disabled and marginalized communities. I don't think it's beyond the pale to ask that there be a two-week unit within a health-type class on various disabilities. Blindness could be covered. The plight of the hearing impaired, that could be covered. What mute members of the community have to deal with and how best to work with them, that could be addressed. It should be standardized part of the academic curriculum on a national level, thereby enabling young folks to come out of their high school experience with a lot of that knowledge firmly in hand. Things start early. Typically, that's the best. When we talk about prodigies, those stories always begin, of course, when the person in question is a youth. And when it comes to long-term, lifelong learning, the best place to start is really at the beginning. So please, on a national level, I think we should be implementing part of a health-oriented curriculum that touches upon these various communities and how best to help them. What do you think of that concept? I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's the best way to go about it 100% because the more the more that people are educated, the more they can better understand what, you know, again, the disabled community, mem members of the disabled community have to go through on a daily basis. And if they can put themselves in their shoes in the slightest, slightest amount, that can help them better understand, thereby allow them to make better decisions when trying to assist members of the disabled community or even family members that they have that may, that may be disabled. They can better then help and understand to, again, to a slight extent, because you never can fully understand what someone is going through unless you are dealing with the same thing. But especially if you have a, a family member who is disabled, you can slightly understand, better understand and be able to help them in a more enlightened way than you were before if you were more educated, which I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on the education part. So going forward, I would like for all of us to remember that these lessons are best when they begin during someone's youth. So parents, educators, folks in charge, we call upon all of you to do your part in educating the young people of this world so that we can all lead a far more equal and compassionate version of daily life.
100%. Moving on to the next segment, respect and representation in the media. John, I picked the movie The Theory of Everything this week, which was a movie that starred Eddie Redmayne. I believe he won an Oscar for this movie, if I'm not mistaken. He sure did. Yeah, he was phenomenal in this movie. And it was directed by James Marsh. And it kind of details the life of famed physicist Stephen Hawking. And I wanted to get your thought. First off, had you seen the movie prior to us looking at it for, you know, this podcast? Oh, I'm such a movie nerd, Santino. I saw this in theaters. I was uh, I was on I was on it. Yes. I was going to say I had a feeling because we we've talked before. I know you're a massive, massive movie guy. So I had a feeling you'd probably seen this considering how big, big of a movie it actually was. What were your thoughts when initially seeing it on the way that it told or I guess the way that it detailed Stephen Hawking's life? Did it do a good job of representing Stephen Hawking, do you feel? So there are two ways to look at a movie like The Theory of Everything. This was trotted out by the studios as Oscar bait, a movie that seemed positioned by its distributor to be one that would compete for those coveted golden statues. Now, you alluded to the fact that Eddie Redmayne actually took home one of those statues And from a certain vantage point, you can view it as, okay, every single year there are X amount of movies that are clearly aimed at Academy voters tugging at their heartstrings. We play super dramatic music as we enter the third act, lots of close-ups, really do drama with a capital D. And from that perspective, yeah, it's... Honestly, in my opinion, probably on the level of something like the King's Speech that had come out a few years prior and seemed to have a bit of the same spirit. So on one end, it's your traditional Oscar bait. And then from another vantage point, the fact that a story like the one lived out by Stephen Hawking received the proverbial big screen treatment in and of itself, is something to get really excited about. Clearly, there was some money invested in this movie, co-starring Felicity Jones. The film was not only positioned as an Oscar contender, but as a film that, even if it didn't compete for awards, was something that its studio could truly be proud of. In our earlier segment, we talked about providing voices to those that need them the most, those from marginalized and disadvantaged communities. And that's what we see here. The story of Stephen Hawking may have been something that I was exposed to growing up, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the case nationwide and worldwide. So getting the Stephen Hawking story on film with a legitimate star-laden cast and, you know, a modest, if not big budget behind it. These are the type of projects that I think we really need to appreciate. Some of your thoughts, Santino. I agree with everything you were saying, John. I think that this was a movie, I don't want to say like it was on the same level as CODA because CODA was a little bit different in the way that it was like directly representing the disabled community. This was telling the story of a real, you know, of obviously a real life person in Stephen Hawking. 
I think it did a really good job of representing him and the disabled community as a whole. You know, I, I go back to some of the things that we, we've talked about and that we, that we look for when analyzing whether it's movies or TV shows and, make, and, and making sure that movies and TV shows steer clear of doing this, of kind of using, you know, just, just, just using, uh, you know, the, the disabilities or the disabled community as like a plot point as something to kind of just further the story along. And it's just like kind of haphazardly thrown in there. And it's not really, there's not a lot of consideration put into it. There's not a lot of thought put behind it. That wasn't the case with this movie whatsoever. You could obviously tell again with the with the direct with with the level of acting that was portrayed in the movie, the the elite level of directing. Obviously, that this movie, I believe, it was nominated for an Oscar. If I'm not mistaken, maybe it wasn't, but it was definitely on the level of something that could have been nominated. I think overall, this movie, one of the better ones we've looked at in terms of how it represents not just Stephen Hawking, but the disabled community as a whole, as this is respect and representation in the media. We look to see how these movies represent the community. And I think it did. I think, I think it did a very, very good job. Now it got me thinking about, I mentioned earlier that on a yearly basis, there are prototypical Oscar ish movies. I think about, Oh, Tropic Thunder comes to mind. The Simple Jack character in that film. I'm not going to say what Robert Downey Jr. says in that movie, but never go full blah, blah, blah. What I mean is this type of thing could have turned really cynical really quickly. You've got a red hot actor, Eddie Redmayne in this case, and a more craven performer, might have done a bit of what the Ben Stiller character does in Tropic Thunder, where it's clearly from a cynical vantage point, it's kind of patronizing, and it doesn't come from somebody that truly cares. I feel that Eddie Redmayne did all of the appropriate research legwork in order to prepare to portray Stephen Hawking. I don't see that cynical, I'm only in this because me being in this means that it's an important movie or this is an important topic or, hey, let's go ahead and pat ourselves on the back because we're telling the story of somebody from a marginalized community. I don't see that level of cynicism on display here. And I think that's why this particular film resonated with so many moviegoers from sea to shining sea. Yeah, most definitely. I agree with you 100%. And I think that this is... I mean, I would recommend this movie to, uh, we, we kind of do this every time that I feel like we look at stuff like this, you know, I'll usually give my two cents on whether I recommend someone to watch this movie. I think just for uh, just moviegoers in general, forget about like, you know, the representation of all of it for a second as somebody who, and you as well, some people who enjoy movies, I would recommend this to pretty much everybody as just a phenomenal film to watch but also for the deeper meaning that we talked about and for the way that it represents the community, it does a great job. So for all those aspects, this is a movie I would 100% recommend anybody to see, no question. Absolutely. And uh, that is going to lead us into our final segment, Connecting the Dots. What are we doing, Connecting the Dots? Well, it's a, a segment in which I'll tell you a story, share an anecdote from my personal life where taking a cue from the Braille system, I was able to 
connect the dots so that things made a little bit more sense in a deeply complex and complicated world. I want to talk today about technology, about apps specifically. I often wonder, wow, if I were living in the 1970s, the 1980s, or even the 1990s, what my life might have been like as a visually impaired person. What the iPhone and contemporary technology have done for the visually impaired community, it's almost hard to encapsulate within just a couple of sentences or even words. It's a device that has enabled members of not only the visually impaired community, but other marginalized communities as well to accomplish everything that they want to, wanted to accomplish in life. When I was learning all of the assistive technology that would come to really help me live out my own destiny, I was made aware of an app called Around Me. There are a number of apps that are commonly used within the visually impaired community. And I never heard of Around Me. And I had a teacher who said, listen, this is going to improve the quality of your life immeasurably. Get this on your phone. I'll show you how to use it and I'll show you how it can help. So it's an app that has a number of sections within it that are all designed to orient you with whatever happens to be surrounding you. So it tells you all of the restaurants that are within walking distance, supermarkets and grocery stores, tracks, their locations, gas stations, ATMs and banks, hospitals, movie theaters, and places of interest. As I have gone about mastering Los Angeles, I've been to every single neighborhood, I've been to every single city in Los Angeles County, and I've had any number of experiences where the idea came to me because of something that I learned on the Around Me app. If I'm in a certain neighborhood, I'll pull it up and it'll tell me about the local landmarks. It'll tell me about the churches and places of worship that happen to be within walking distance the historical events that might have taken place in any given location. It has helped orient me with an entire city. I'd go on record in saying that Los Angeles is the most confusing city in the United States. I hosted other podcasts called Living in the Sprawl, where we deconstruct that myth and really delve deep into those neighborhoods, communities, and things associated with them that often intimidate people who are visiting or people that have just moved here or people who pretty much stay in their community bubbles within the greater Los Angeles area, hardly venturing out into other sections of the city. And it was with the help of the Around Me app and some others that I was really able to orient myself with an entire city, the second biggest city in the United States, the largest county in the United States, and to put everything together, linking one community to another, one city 
to another. It was all at my disposal with the aid of apps like around me, like Google Maps, like Be My Eyes, the transit app, and this type of stuff mm, simply didn't exist 30 plus years ago. And seriously, I don't know what my life might have been like if I had been the age that I am now 30 years ago. Dare I say, it would not have been in any way, shape or form as fulfilling as it is now. And I credit that in large part to the, not only the assistive technology that I have discussed on the show in prior episodes, but specifically the apps. It's a niche world out there. This podcast deals with a group that can be defined as niche. And as such, apps and really commerce as a whole can be focused upon smaller niche groups. So it's financially worth it for people to invent apps like Around Me, and it's even more worth it for folks that feel alone and isolated, rudderless, unmotivated. It's especially important that we link those individuals with these extraordinarily helpful apps so that they can too feel as though they're empowered to really get the experience out of this life that they are looking for. Yeah, John, that was a really, really in- informative story. And, I, and I've seen you, you know, when I was in LA, when we would go get like, you know, lunch or whatever it was, go grab food. I would see how you would operate in terms of using your phone to get around, listening to like the, the directions being given, stuff like that. So I truly... It, it, it is an important story that you told because the, the fact that you have access to the technology that you have access to makes life a lot easier. And like, I go back to kind of what you said in the beginning of what do you think genuinely it would have been like for you to have gone through life being blind without having access to the technology that you have access to now? It would have been difficult. It would have been far more challenging than it is. Yeah, I think about apps such as around me, like Google Maps. These are things I use on a daily basis. They tell me from like a really practical logistics perspective, okay, this is where I am in relation to the sidewalk. And I know not to cross into the street because I know that they help me out from a safety perspective, sure. But they have also greatly empowered me to, well, stitch a quilt together of experiences from all across Los Angeles County, not merely the city, and I would not have been able to do that in any version of the world that I can imagine without much of the assistive technology and specifically the applications uh, that I've been able to use. And I've now, I've seen how important these applications have been in the lives of other members of the disabled community. And I'm sure you have too, Santino. Yeah, no, I, I, I really have. And I think this was a really good way to close out our episode because we talked a lot about, you know, trusting the process with our quote at the beginning. And I think this is a, a good way to kind of tie it back, tie it back around to, you know, understanding that 
you're going through life and like I'm talking you you specifically about going through life and having to find different ways to navigate with this new challenge that you were presented and you've done that and I've witnessed it before. So I think that, you know, the story that you told was a great way to kind of bring this episode full circle and kind of cap it off, but that's going to do it for this episode of visionaries. And like had John had said, we haven't able to put out an episode in a while. We're going to be back on a consistent schedule going forward. This is our first episode now starting out on a long line of episodes to come. So stay tuned for that guys. If you're not following us on Instagram, go follow us at visionaries underscore podcast. You can find all our episodes on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Thank you guys so much for listening to another great episode of Visionaries, and we'll see you guys next time.